0: It used to be seen as a greatest thing a statesman could accomplish is to restore national health and greatness, to find a nation in distress, to find its cities decayed or depopulated, impoverished, and to restore it to a condition of health and prosperity. And if there is anything I can tell you in these next segments is how different we are from antiquity... Because ancient Greek, Rome, they look up to statesmen like this. While we, on the other hand, are told to look up to very different kinds of political men. We are taught even to be suspicious and fearful of men who are like this. Therefore, the suspicion of Putin, who did some of this for the Russians, and the suspicion of Trump, who wants to do this for America. No, the the way... A nation, or let's say even a civilization, defines political greatness. Says a great deal, I think, about whether it is completely, uh, let's say, zombified or deluded, whether its people are deluded to be self-destructive, suicidal, or whether, on the other hand, it is filled with normal people who want health and prosperity. And it's not a surprise if you compare the way modern Western nations the kinds of great leaders they look up to, versus those who ancient Greeks and Romans look up to, it's not a surprise that we should come off very badly. Because populations infected with a mind virus, that makes them seek the benefit of hostile others, and not of their own. And I mean, the modern political idols, they come off very badly, not just in the sense of, let's say, less uh, impressive achievements, less great character, and so forth. But also in that the leaders celebrated now, for the most part, are not leaders who improved the lives of normal citizens or who increased health and prosperity in their nations. But rather, they are those who destroyed their nations in the name of ideals. That who is who is respected today, to put it politely when you say ideal. But this, I think, is symptom of a sick and insane people. When, for example, you celebrate Lincoln or Churchill, Lincoln tore his nation apart with a civil war that was unnecessary. So you can say now America was already two armed camps by the time Lincoln came to office and he's not responsible for that. But he could have averted it. He did nothing to stop the war. He rather goaded it on. And I think he left the country worse than when he found it, not just in the material destruction and the loss of lives and carnage, but also he left it politically worse. The civil war was a very traumatic experience from which Americans emerged with a loss of many of their ancient liberties. And uh, if you think about uh, slavery, if that's what you're concerned about, you know, Brazil emancipated slaves in 1889, I think, without uh, a civil war. And Churchill is even worse in this way. He is worshipped now by conservatives, but he found a British empire in great distress and almost broke. And he broke it completely. He broke England's strength completely in a war that he could never win. But you see this idea now that this is precisely the kind of leader that should be revered. A man who goes on a crusade against evil, who opposes evil ideologies or tyrants at all costs, and who leaves his people and nation worse off than before he came to power. Because England was totally broken by the war, it lost its international standing. It lost its empire, lost empire. And the initial aims for which it went to war were not achieved. In other words, Poland and East Europe ended up under tyranny anyway. And Germany was willing to give England peace terms that were very favorable. It was not going to be invaded by Germany. But tell me, if England had been occupied by Germany, how much worse would it be right now than it is? I mean, look at who is mayor of London. And now we all hope for Boris Johnson to save England. We will see. It's too late. It was already in a terminal decline by Margaret Thatcher years. It, it should have never started World War Two with Germany. And by the way, for those of you who think this was about saving the Jews. Churchill did not go into war for that, and nor did the Allies. The Jews were killed anyway, and here is uh, something for you to see. They would not have been killed with the English and the French consuls in Warsaw, and the seas open to Palestine. So actually, you have it backwards if that is uh, your concern. No, I believe that uh, Churchill... You know, that uh, once the great moral, fanatical delusion of our time passes, once this moral framework withers away, history will remember Churchill for what he was, which is intemperate demagogue and a drunk who led his nation and people to ruin in a vain desire to appear righteous and uh, this kind of uh, moral righteous and so on and so forth and to inscribe his name in chronicles of history And uh, in his case, it's not even, by the way, because of malice against the West, but because of stupidity. For those of you who think that Churchill is a great neocon or a liberal, I'm not sure you're aware that he wrote in 1920 or 21 that he thought Bolshevism was a Jewish movement. Or maybe you're not aware how after the war he was a stalwart in opposition to mass immigration to England from its colonies. How he was opposed to all non-white immigration. He said so. And I'm sorry then to inform you that he was a racist and anti-Semite, you know. But this is why I say he was a stupid man or maybe... It was alcoholism, because although his intentions for England were maybe good, everything he did led to the ruin and despoilation of his nation and his people. And everything he did worked against his intentions. His intentions were good. For example, he was very anti-Soviet, I think. But you see this clearly. Uh, He thought uh, how he could get the communist FDR to go to war against Stalin. And uh, it was just hopeless. This is a behavior of an intemperate drunk. These are not great leaders who sacrifice their nation and their people for what they think are moral ends. And I want to show you a, a different model from antiquity. A man, a great statesman general and a hero from middle of the three hundreds BC, uh, his name is Timo Leon, Timo Leon of Corinth. It means uh, something like honor lion when translated into English. All the Greek names of aristocratic Greek names, at least, they have a meaning in uh, English. You know, uh, Pericles means something like super fame. You know, so Timo Leon means something like honor lion, you know. Any, any Greek name with hippos, like hippias, or any H-I-P-P name, that uh, horsey names are very aristocratic Greek names. But uh, this uh, Timo Leon of Corinth of the 300s BC, he found uh, Sicily a wasteland. a Greek city is in uh, Sicily, completely emptied out almost, in chaos, the land devastated by wars, and uh, he restored it, and this is what I mean by restoration. He repopulated the cities, he expelled and defeated the barbarians, he reformed the cities to have good leadership and laws and he found it in distress and left it healthy, prosperous and happy population. Very simple, that what is mean and that is really the test of the man in politics, you know not whether. You uh, defeat evil, or whether you cure some perceived moral injustice. But do you leave the city as full and happy? That's something that's quite measurable. Are there healthy families and citizens? Are they still under threat of foreign domination? That is the test. And so I want to tell a story of Timo Leon of Corinth, whose life is very strange. His whole life, uh, weird, uh, with great misfortune in the first half of his life, but with uh, an amazing end that when you hear it, you know he must have had special divine force with him because the successes of his campaign in Sicily are almost unheard of in history. So I'm not presenting him to you as someone you should necessarily emulate in all ways because I don't know if you have uh, divine assistance as he did. He was instrument of some gods to save Sicily and Greece, I will tell you. But uh, so just to tell you, beginning of his life, he was born in illustrious family in Corinth. I'm not sure as a year, nobody knows, but it is around the end of uh, 5th century BC. So some say around 410 BC, others say later, I think is maybe later, let's say around 400 BC he is born. And uh, he died around, let's say, 336 BC. So you can think of this period as not very nice period in Greek history, because it's right around the end of the Peloponnesian War, but uh, before Alexander. So it's the decay of classical Greece. It is a turbulent period of decline. But uh, you can achieve the greatest glory even in period of decline, you see. And so he's born, let's say, at the end of Peloponnesian War in Corinth, which is a commercial city a merchant city uh, run by an oligarchy, Um, a city of uh, luxury and seafaring. So, of course, it is a Greek city, classical Greek city, so that is uh, relative, everything I've said. It's uh, uh, relatively commercial and luxurious, in other words, because it still has very strong military tradition, Uh, military tradition city, where the citizens are armed hoplites, heavy infantry, that is, which takes much special training and power. That's what the gymnasiums were for. I keep telling you so that you can build strong body to wear that kind of armor and be able to carry that kind of spear and so forth. So that Greece during this time, after Peloponnesian War ends, you essentially had uh, so many veterans who were no longer in this big war, but who were well-trained, experienced, and they had commanders and captains who were well-versed in military sciences, in tactics, in sieges, and uh, all kinds of like things, and uh, night attacks, so that Greeks during uh, this time, even commercial cities like Corinth, they exported, in fact, many mercenaries all over the ancient world, some uh, fighting in Persian pay, others for the Carthaginians, and, uh, of course, many others, most of them fighting in other Greek states were opportunity Uh, presented itself. So this uh, general condition of the time, Athens supposedly lost the war. But you know, actually, Athens recovered very fast from Peloponnesian war loss. And even uh, they defeated Sparta in some engagements uh, very soon after. uh, But so Timoleon is born uh, during this time. And he apparently served with great bravery in his youth in various wars, you know, Greek states always in war of various magnitudes against each other. And he served in a war with great bravery and saved his uh, brother's life, I think uh, more than once, in very hard-fought battles. At one point, he uh, was the sole one defending his brother with a shield after his brother had fallen off horse. His brother, Timophanes, was uh, the commander of the cavalry. And uh, Timoleon alone, he keep off many enemy fighters only by himself, it was a great feat. But his brother, I mentioned, Timophanes, who was apparently unlike Timoleon in character. So Timoleon in character was a gentle, uh, reserved, temperate, kind of a melancholic type, a Nordic autist type. I'm sorry if I offend my mad friends, but uh, Timoleon seems to fit this type of quiet, reserved man whereas his brother Timophanes was a hothead and power-hungry and war-loving, maybe also autist, but aggressive autist, so that through this and because of all these uh, qualities, this brother Timophanes rose in influence in Corinth. And at one point he was given by the Corinthians through a vote. They gave him command of 400 mercenaries. And uh, they did this because they were afraid their city might get betrayed by allies. So they gave... This commander Timophanes, 400 marks, to defend the city, so to have as a standing force ever ready to watch the city. But instead of defending, he took it over. He put to death many of the leading citizens, many of the wealthy, and he uh, was becoming tyrant. So Timoleon uh, tried to dissuade his brother from this with a friend and a relative who uh, he took a relative and a friend of his who was a seer a prophet, and they tried to convince this uh, brother uh, not to do this. But the confrontation in the marketplace became violent, the brother Timophanes being a violent character. So his brother ended up getting killed, not by Timoleon himself, but by his associates. It's a very bad story in some way, you know, because he was left uh, then in a very ambiguous position. On one hand, he had saved Corinth from tyranny, But on the other hand, he had killed his own brother. And uh, Timoleon regretted, it seems, very much what he did. His mother uh, said she would not see him anymore and so on. And Plutarch says that uh, Timoleon entered a kind of depression. He ended up haunting the most uh, desolate regions of the Corinthian countryside, living in uh, solitude over uh, what he had done. And he stayed out of doing anything else for 20 years. He was basically depressed uh, over what had happened for 20 years. So now it is 20 years later when this story of Timoleon picks up again for real after this very unusual and unfortunate beginning to his life. A cursed and a tragic first half of his life and a blessed and divine second half filled with fortune. And I will return to this after the break. Okay, so back to Caribbeanism, life of Timoleon, man of power. Uh, so Timoleon had become a hermit because uh, despite the fact that he had put country before family, which was seen as noble, he was also a fratricide. And that was one of the most ignoble things. Uh, so it's very ambiguous position. And he's basically a ghost now haunting the countryside of his native city, Corinth. But there arrived in Corinth a call for help. So I covered in previous show how the Greeks colonized Sicily and the city of Syracuse, which was the biggest and wealthiest Greek city in Sicily and actually in all of Greek colonies in Sicily or Italy, called Greater Greece. But this Syracuse sent out a call for help to Corinth because Corinth was its mother city, mother city. So Syracuse was colonized by Corinthians, founded by Corinthians. And this call for help came basically because Syracuse and actually all of Sicily was a complete mess at uh, this time. There had been tyrants in uh, various uh, Greek cities in uh, Sicily fighting each other, uh, wasting the cities, massacring people uh, and local revolutions, overthrowing one tyrant who was replaced by another, and in the constant massacres against their own citizens the expulsions of citizens, the fact that, uh, as I said in previous shows, some of them, they actually tried to mix foreigners into the cities to more easily control them in much the way as our tyrannical ruling class does to us now. Well, through all this, uh, Sicily had become depopulated. Many Greeks left for other places, for example, many Syracusans, Left and they became exiles in other Greek cities in Asia Minor and other parts of the Mediterranean and so forth. So it had become a depopulated, broken place, Sicily. And to top it all off, the west of the island had been uh, long controlled by the Carthaginians, who now they see their chance to make a move on Greek territories. And they had, uh, by the way, long interfered, as you might expect, the Carthaginians had long interfered in these internecine Greek squabbles, playing off one tyrant against another, giving aid now to this one, now to that. But at this time, when Syracuse was divided between two tyrants, as I tell you in one moment, the Carthaginians landed a huge force on the island, sixty, I think, sixty thousand soldiers. So the Greeks of Sicily, and in particular of Syracuse, seeing themselves uh, crushed on one side by rapacious tyrants and on the other by the Carthaginian Semitic barbarian, they put out a call to Corinth to help them. So, you know, uh, the tyrant of Syracuse at this time, just to give you some uh, interesting background, he was basically, uh, the tyrant of Syracuse was Dionysius. And this is the same tyrant, Dionysius, that uh, Plato the philosopher went to visit and to court but uh, this uh, very complicated story that uh, I may cover on another show, the life of Dionysius the tyrant and uh, on this I tell you that uh, this tyrant Dionysius of Syracuse before the episode I'm telling you now before this time I mean he had been expelled and uh, he returned uh, after 10 years of being expelled from Syracuse and when he returned, all of his ferocity, which was great to begin with, but he let it loose, he let loose all his ferocity in revenge on the people who had expelled him, who had betrayed him, so that he was so violent and murderous and bad this time when he returned that the Syracusans, they went to another Greek city, neighboring Greek city called Leontini. And they asked the tyrant of that city, of Leontini, whose name was Hycetas. And uh, this, by the way, Hiketas, I, uh, is really the great uh, villain of this story. But they asked Hiketas for help against Dionysus. And uh, Hiketas, look, I know these Gricoloid names are uh, but uh, maybe complicated, these Gricoloid names, but there is a good Sicilian mafia-type story here, uh, mafia mob hit. So Hiketas, the Greek uh, tyrant of Leontini, Uh, Came and uh, he managed to take over most of Syracuse from Dionysus uh, because Hiketas had Carthaginian help. So Dionysus, tyrant of Syracuse, was now reduced to holding the citadel, and uh, he was besieged. And this is basically the condition of Syracuse when the call for help went out to Greece. Basically, Syracuse is uh, divided between these two tyrants in a civil war, with one of them, Hiketas, having... Carthaginian help Carthaginians sending him soldiers, so this seemed like a completely uh, horrible situation, and uh, the Carthaginians were mighty. The Greek cities were divided and weak, Syracuse in civil war, and suddenly you are called for help. What you do? How can you even start so the Corinthians gave it to Timoleon, the Corinthians gave him this task, telling him that well, if you do well at this you will be remembered as a tyrant killer. But if you do bad, you will be remembered as a brother killer. So if they gave him opportunity, you know, you, you get redemption or you get damnation. So what he has to lose? He agrees to the command. And he begins to outfit his ships and to collect soldiers and mercenaries for the expedition. But uh, the tyrant Hicetas in Syracuse, in Sicily, he hears about this plan and I'm just telling you this so that you know what not to do, because Hiketas is a good example of strong-headed, ham-handed idiot. He sends the Corinthians a letter saying, you know, I know you were called to help us, but I have it under control. Do not come. I have things under control. And also, by the way, the Carthaginians do not want you to come, and they have put out a big fleet at sea, and they will make sure that you cannot cross to Sicily. And this is uh, what not to do, this thing I'm telling you, this kind of thing. Because, of course, the predictable reaction. The Corinthians were outraged by this, and they decided to supply the expedition even more than before. They really made it a real adventure, and expedition at this time. Put money and troops into it. So I should tell you, though, however, of divine signs, of the many divine omens that accompanied this crusade. The priestesses of Persephone, the daughter of Demeter, who was raped in Sicily. The priestesses of Persephone, the goddess to whom Sicily was dear. By the way, this is a very powerful subject. I fear to mention it here. This spirit is of great power and appears in dreams. I warn you, spirit of Persephone, extremely powerful. But her priestesses said they received dreams that Persephone and her mother were getting ready to go on a voyage and that they hinted they were going to travel with Timoleon. So on hearing this prophecy, the Corinthians dedicated a sacred ship with purple sails. And uh, they named uh, this uh, trireme for the goddesses that would accompany Timoleon on his journey. And indeed, the goddesses and their allies gave powerful signs along the way. As the ships were approaching Italy, a fire came from the sky and produced a ball of light that traveled with the ships by their side and that fell right on the spot where the pilots were steering the ships toward uh, where they were supposed to land in Italy. I believe this completely. And I myself have seen such things. I once saw a ball of green light when I was in the mountains and it arose up from the pines and it shot down into a valley. Showing me a sign, I believe. And even before this, when Timoleon went to Delphi to ask the oracle for help, a ribbon of victory fell on his head there. Another powerful sign. And I tell you this because you must understand this was a divine mission. The gods sailed together with Timoleon on his mission of restoration and to keep Sicily Greek and later on the romans would take up the greek war against the carthaginians as well so you see this is meaning far beyond just some squabbles between one or two ancient cities or between mob bosses in uh, sicily the gods accompanied him because they wanted to preserve the glory of greece and a path also for rome to greatness they had a secret design and if you are christian then you have to believe this in your own way. Because remember, Dante puts Brutus in hell. Why? Because he murdered Caesar. And Dante believed that the Roman Empire was necessary divine mission to allow the teaching of Christ to spread on its roads. You see, it is not by accident that Christ is born in the time of Augustus. It is so done so that this this faith can be propagated through the world, through Rome. So if you believe that, then you must believe this, what I told you now, in your own way, uh, your own explanation. But the signs were there and they were witnessed by many, the flashes of fire from the sky. But so Timoleon gets to Italy. They did this, by the way, by hugging the coast. You look on the map, you see the ship's exit the Isthmus of Corinth. They picked up allies on the way from the Leucadians, which were another Corinthian colony in the Ionian Sea, small island that is considered some by some people to be Ithaca, the uh, Ithaca of Odysseus. It's called uh, Lefkada today. And uh, the English actually had presence there uh, not too long ago. They had... A fort there I believe and they are present the same way they did on Corfu uh, which was known ancient well as Corcura uh, another Corinthian uh, ally they pick up ships on the way also so he gets to Italy by hugging the coast they, they cross over on sort of the heel of the boot uh, of Italy I think and then hug the coastline until uh, they get all the way down to the city of Regium, now called Regio, Reggio Calabria, which is at the very tip of Italy's boot, right where you can cross into uh, Sicily. And uh, once they get there, they are blockaded because a Carthaginian fleet twice their size is guarding the harbor, and they cannot leave, they cannot cross over into Sicily. And the tyrant, he, us, he sends envoys to try to convince Timoleon and his small army, which had, after picking up allies, swelled to let's say 1,000 or 1,200 soldiers, about that. But uh, so the tyrant, together with his uh, Carthaginian allies, tried to convince Timoleon to return to Greece. So, what happens now is a Greek trick, very much like Trojan horse. So, okay, listen to this trick, because Timoleon is said to be a very lucky man in his life. But I think he was consummate trickster. And he tried to hide that by saying, oh, I'm fortunate, I'm lucky. But you look at all of his adventures in Sicily, it's one trick after another. So now Timo Leon says to Hiketas and the Carthaginians, look, I will leave, but I demand that we make our case before the people of Regium, and we let them decide whether your case wins or mine. They will vote, and if they want me to go back to Greece with the fleet, I will. So the citizens of Regium, which of course is Greek city, they make a show of having a big assembly and a big talk, uh, you know. So everyone gathers in stadium for speeches, both by Timo Leon and also by Hiketas and maybe the Carthaginians also spoke. And uh, on Timo Leon's side, long speeches are made with no point, just long rambling speech so that... During this time, when the city is shut down, everybody's distracted in the stadium listening to the speech, the Greek ships, they sneak away. And uh, in the middle of assembly, Timoleon himself sneaks away last, and his ship departs. So that then the Phoenicians are very upset, you see, by all this. They were tricked. The Greeks laugh at them. They They managed to break the blockade, and Plutarch says... That uh, the people of Regium were very amused to see the Carthaginians of all people to be so upset on account of treachery, because they were supposed of all people to be uh, masters of treachery and of trickery, the Phoenicians, you know, masters of lying. But they got uh, they got punked. So tell this please to Nasim Talib. Uh, tell this to Nicholas Nasim Talib. At another point in uh, the story, by the way, Plutarch has a Greek murk referred to the Carthaginians and the Phoenicians as as the basest and bloodiest of men. This is what the Greeks thought of uh, the Phoenicians, Carthaginians. Is this okay? Ask Nicholas Nassim Taleb. So anyway, Timoleon gets to Sicily and Hicetas, the tyrant uh, in control of most of Syracuse, he is desperate. So look, I don't want to give you all the details of uh, this history and the campaigns, but just to give you one idea of how it went, and it's all like the episode I just mentioned, okay? So, Timoleon gets from one success to another through trickery, through surprise, and through good luck. All the while, he is totally outnumbered, but... Not like two to one. He's outnumbered five to one, ten to one, and so on by armies of, not of barbarians who don't know how to fight, but of Greeks who are very well trained and of Carthaginians who are actually very good soldiers, heavy armor, very well equipped. So in the very first battle, he's just landed. Timoleon just landed in Sicily at Messina. He only has about 1,200 men, but Hicetas, the tyrant, has 5,000 men. So he's very much outnumbered. But they both, by chance, end up heading toward this small town. And they get there at the same time in the evening, after a march, days-long march. Without realizing it, they get there at the same time. So Timoleon urges his advisors. He tells them, do not camp, do not rest. He realizes the enemy is close by and will be surprised after a long march. He figures out Hiketas is setting up camp for the evening. And he just, he forces through his soldiers not to camp and to take tea or whatever, the, you know, like the English did at Gallipoli. They landed and they decided to take tea and uh, whatever and they got crushed by the Ottomans. So, you know, uh, Timoleon doesn't do that. He does the opposite. So he makes them, his soldiers power through and he surprised Hiketa's army uh, that was just then setting up camp at night he totally routs them and defeats them as they were uh, setting up for the evening so this is the first victory and uh, his future victories are very similar to this one and uh, you know when you win you get more wins that's why you should never lose hope because you lose one and it uh, I mean you win one and it brings encouragement to allies you win one thing, and it brings you allies. So news of this victory spreads fast, and other Sicilian cities come to his aid. The uh, tyrants of other other cities say, you know, they don't like the Carthaginians. They come to his aid, and the Corinthians, the home the home city, they decide, I think, to send two thousand well armed men as reinforcements. So I come back. I'm not going to cover every detail of the years-long campaign, because this campaign started 344 BC and ended 337 BC or so, lasted about, let's say, seven years. But I'm just here to tell you how it ended and how he was assisted, I think, by very powerful spirits, by spirits in his victories. I'll be right back. Uh, Timoleon fleet, uh, as I say, set out for Sicily around 344 BC. And this uh, only a little bit before Alexander's conquests. Uh, But I think uh, Timoleon's uh, achievements are not less than Alexander's. Uh, Of course they are less in extent of land, and uh, far fewer people know about them. And arguably in historical significance, they are less, maybe. But you must consider that, on the other hand, Timoleon uh, faced much uh, more powerful enemies, I think, because the Greeks of Sicily were much better armed and trained than the Persians that Alexander faced, and the Carthaginians also. They were, uh, you know, they're the, the very powerful uh, military. And um, Timoleon faced a really hopeless situation in beginning in Sicily, but he overcame it through wild enthusiasm for his own cause, through reckless abandon. If you think about it, he comes off in the Plutarch story. And by the way, Plutarch has Life of Timoleon, which I'm basing most of my story here on, but there are other sources too. Uh, but in Plutarch's story and in other people's story, Timoleon come off as a very reasonable, gentle, moderate guy. But if you think of the chance he took on this, you know, it's, it's a really reckless abandon. He seems just to have been a reserved and gentleman in public, but to do what he did. It's the actions of somebody with no fear of death, who didn't care, maybe, or with a wild belief in his own victory. And if you combine that with calmness and foresight, you win. But to go against armies many times your own size and really very experienced and well-equipped armies, like I say, not just masses of slaves, but the Carthaginian soldiers were very well armed and very well trained with iron breastplates and bronze helmets and so forth. Well, maybe too heavy armor and heavy weapons. I tell you why in a moment. But I will not cover all details of campaign, but basically after the initial reverses, Uh, Hiketas, the tyrant of Syracuse, after he gets defeated by Timoleon, he gets hot mad. So he actually gives up and he openly invites the Carthaginians into the city, no longer hiding that they are his ally. Before this, he was sort of uh, using them under the table. So now Plutarch says the citizens, the Greeks of Sicily and of Syracuse, saw that the final barbarization of Sicily, which they had long feared, had finally arrived. Because in all the wars, the Greeks had never lost Syracuse to the Carthaginians. But now Hiketas invited them in, the great tyrant traitor, and he made the place a barbarian camp. So this was a big outrage to the Greeks. And I think, again, I mean, by the way, compare this to what Churchill did to make alliance with Stalin and FDR against Europe. But anyway, so this was a big outrage to the Greeks. And I think this kind of villainy on the part of uh, Hiketas, you know, you are helped. Timoleon was helped by having such a stupid and vicious ham-handed opponent. Because at this point, some things, uh, other things began to turn to Timoleon's favor even more than before. The tyrant Dionysius, who had managed to hold on to the citadel of Syracuse, he decides to surrender it to Timoleon. He says, "You know, I'm not going to win here. I uh, I will lose either against the Corinthians or against the Carthaginians. So I uh, I will just give uh, my citadel. At least I'm giving it to the Greeks. This is Dionysus' way of thinking. I'm guessing." And uh, so he surrenders the citadel of Syracuse to Timoleon, who then sends secretly small squadrons in fishing boats at night and such uh, secretive route to take over the citadel and to supply it with around 400 men. And Dionysius escapes in a ship to Greece, where he lives as an exile in Corinth uh, the rest of his life. And that is its own story. It's interesting what he did there. There are many... Amusing uh, tales about that, apparently, how he engaged in buffoonery. This is Dionysius uh, the tyrant in exile. Uh, He whiled his time away on the street, arguing with merchants, getting in squabbles with prostitutes and so on, so that people would come from the city and actually from all of Greece to marvel at uh, this uh, formerly world-famous powerful tyrant who was just wasting his time uh, whiling away playing games with prostitutes. And something he did so out of genuine dissoluteness, the same way that uh, the ty- uh, not tyrant, but you remember the uh, exiled leader of Georgia, who was leader of Georgia in our own time uh, during Bush years, he gets uh, exiled essentially, and he lives in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which is now getting crushed by the by Chinese aids. But uh, this guy, actually, I forget his name. he, he the Georgian leader. He lives in Brooklyn, Williamsburg, and he lives the hipster way of life, going to blue bottle coffee and uh, this. And this is basically how Dionysus lived in uh, Corinth, in exile. But other people suspect that he did this because he wanted to appear harmless to the Corinthians. so They would not think he had any designs to take over the city or to be plotting and such. And this actually is a smart old tactic. You see also this... In a story of 47 ronin from Japan, very famous story, where you have a samurai, uh, their master is unjustly killed. So the samurai who are his retainers, they decide to avenge him. But they know they cannot do this right away. So they affect, they pretend to be dissolute drunkards for an entire year, spending their time in public drunkenness, going to brothel, whorehouse, acting like lost buffoons, depressed which puts their uh, master's murderer at ease. He says, oh, these guys are loser drunks. So they get him to let his guard down. And then a year later, I think, to the day of their master's murder, they rally. And on a decided point, they take their revenge. They cut head of the aggressor and they bring said head to their master's grave, achieving revenge. So, you know... This method of acting like a dissolute playboy to get people to get their guard down is a common ploy and is smart. But so Dionysus, in any case, settles to the life of a dissolute exile in Corinth. And anyway, back to main story, Timoleon, the adventurer, he takes over the citadel of Syracuse, which he then continues to supply from the sea with uh, kind of a small uh, boats, uh, small boats in the rough seas, from his base in another city, Katana, a Greek city, to the north of Syracuse. And he can sneak in the small boats in between the larger vessels of the Phoenicians. They cannot keep blockade because there are stormy seas. And uh, he can sneak in small boats. So this the kind of trickery and luck he uses uh, throughout. But in any case, like I say, I do not want to just uh, give you straight history and all the details on this show. But to tell you in broad outline what happens next. And what happens next is Timoleon defeats the Carthaginians and then he defeats the Greek tyrants in Sicily. And he does so only in a few years. Entire campaign is over in seven years. That's real nation building, what he did there, not what America does 20 years and cannot do in Afghanistan. But the first thing he achieves is the final defeat of the Carthaginians it's probably his greatest military feat because in the main battle he has i think about 4 or 5000 soldiers only or maybe 9 or 10000 maybe and the Carthaginians have 70000 and the battle takes place in the west of sicily in carthaginian lands and people consider it to just so crazy that he would take on a force so many times larger that actually a thousand or so mercenaries he had abandoned him on the way. They thought in just no way could he win. And uh, these mercs who abandoned him, by the way, were later punished by the gods for their treachery. They were massacred by the Brutians in Italy, you know, But uh, for, the, for their treachery. But Timoleon, he trusted completely in his ability. You know, like heroes in Homer, when they thrust with the spear... Homer sometimes says, trusting in the strength of their hand, or they say a small prayer in trusting in their own power. You must learn to do this. And you can learn to ask Jesus for help in this. But his speed and his divine mission, you see, of Timoleon, he actually won this battle where he was so much outnumbered. This uh, really amazing thing, maybe eight or 9,000 versus 70,000, but he won it because he attacked the Carthaginians from a superior position, while they were crossing a river, and he had the divine fortune of a hailstorm happening, a thunderstorm, flashes of light from the sky, fire from sky, at his back and in the faces of the enemy. And the enemy, the Carthaginians, they were actually wearing much heavier armor in this case than the Greeks, iron breastplates. Uh, bronze helmet, heavy weapons, because in this uh, battle, a great number of Carthaginians fought themselves. You know, otherwise, the Carthaginians, which were a merchant republic, they almost exclusively used mercenaries, Numidian and Iberian and other mercs. But in this battle, they participated themselves, and they got just murdered in the river and the mud by the lighter armed Greeks. They, They sank in the mud. And this was uh, Timo Leon. excuse me, they tried to use 5G radio rays against me, but this was Timoleon's greatest military victory, and it's almost miraculous. So it's hard to learn from this victory, except maybe speed, resolute belief in your own win, despite all odds, and surprise enemy in weak position with speed, which he did also, if you remember, in his first engagement. But divine force will accompany you on such boldness combined with mischief of trickery, I think. So after this battle, the Carthaginians gave some resistance, they won some other minor battles, not against Timoleon himself, but against some of his retainers in other parts of Sicily, in North Sicily. But ultimately they were defeated. So, they essentially agreed to surrender Sicily or most of it back to the Greeks and to return to Africa. And they agreed not to interfere again, not to support this or that tyrant anymore. And then the next stage of Timoleon's campaign, you can think of maybe as a mop up operation where Timoleon went around to one Greek city after another and deposed and killed their tyrants. You know, uh, big Greek cities at the time, Agrigentum, or Akragas, which was a huge Greek city, commercial place, I think with 200,000 citizens, whereas today Agrigento is a small town, I think has 40,000 uh, inhabitants. It was a much bigger place during Greek times, 200,000. But other Greek cities too, Gela, Leontini, many others, including this also included the defeat of hiketas himself in North Sicily the great villain, and his execution. He was killed along... You can think of this as a mop-up operation by Timo Leon, or since this is happening after all in Sicily, you can think of as Godfather-style simultaneous execution of uh, his enemies, uh, like at the end of Godfather movie. This is exactly what happened, where he basically extirpated all the mob bosses and tyrants of Sicily. And many died horrible deaths, by the way, tortured in public... And had their entire families killed. But you know, this is a risk you take as a tyrant. But Timoleon, though he could have become uh, himself the same uh, king or tyrant, he chose not to. He chose instead to repopulate Sicily with Greek colonists, the real nation building, uh, a process he had begun already after his first successes and before the final confrontation with the Carthaginians. But uh, this is a process of a national revival and a recolonization that began in earnest now with exiles returning and other Greeks from across Greek world moving to Sicily, making it great again. And it shows you, you know, nothing is over until it's over in politics. Decolonization can happen and recolonization can happen. But someone like Timo Leon, a man is uh, like this, you get once every thousand years or 2000 years who managed to bring a territory back to prosperity and asked nothing for it other than the joy of admiring his own work. Maybe George Washington is like this. In other words, to put in words of Plutarch, this, I'm quoting Plutarch now, he did not return to Corinth, nor did he take part in the disturbances of Greece or expose himself to the jealousy of his fellow citizens, the rock on which generals, in their insatiable greed, for honors and power makes shipwreck, so he was not uh, beset by jealousy of others because he did not seek more, you know. But but he remained in Sicily, enjoying the blessings of his own creation, the greatest of which was the sight of so many cities and myriads of people whose happiness was due to him. End quote. And this is very interesting that both Plutarch and Greeks in general. His fame spread all over Greek world, uh, of course. But both Plutarch and other Greeks, they admire the seeming ease with which Timoleon achieved all of this. It's admirable and genius when you make it look easier. Not when there is much struggle and labor involved, but when a man is blessed by the gods as he was, moving from one beautifully executed trickery to the next, from one wild and improbable victory in battle to the next all achieved seemingly without effort and with divine wind at his back. This is better than striving. And he is said to have performed the greatest and most glorious deeds of any Greek of his time. This was before Alexander, but this is true. Through the remainder of his life, he was treated essentially as the father of the city in Syracuse. And actually, all of Greek Sicily, all the cities there, looked up to him as a great prophet and advisor, And um, he lived actually a private life, mostly, on his estates. But um, he was looked up to as sort of the father of all of Greek Sicily. And at his funeral, a very lavish funeral given by the people of Syracuse, the following declaration was read regarding his achievements, and I quote now, by the people of Syracuse, Timoleon, son of Timodemus from Corinth, is here buried at public cost of 200 minae." and is honoured for all time with annual contests, musical, equestrian, and gymnastic, because he overthrew the tyrants, subdued the barbarians, repeopled the largest of the devastated cities, and then restored their laws to the Greeks of Sicily. End epitaph. Tell me then, if you can think of politicians or generals who have achieved something similar in our time. And uh, there may be some, not exactly in our time, but maybe in uh, the colonies and an era of colonization and exploration. But they are not the crazy drunks we are told to admire today. And this is meaning of political restoration. Putin sort of tries to achieve this. But just now, what I read to you in that funeral dedication, and it should be the great aim of every statesman to preserve prosperity and I mean uh, concrete prosperity of that kind, or to restore it when they find privation and wasteland, to replace that with prosperity and happiness and to restore their own people to power and freedom. And you see at least here that uh, the ancient desire, uh, as opposed to our own, is very clear in this example. And uh, Plutarch ends the story uh, with this. He says that the Syracusans devoted a gymnasium for their young men, and they called it the Timo Leonteum. And I think this should be your great aim as a politician also, if you become one, to uh, but translated into modern nation-state. This is not just some gym building named after you. Literally, uh, that would be the case. But on scale, it would be an entire national fitness program for the cadres of citizen class men that you leave behind to rule named after you, this fitness program. A fitness program named after you for the citizen warrior class. This should be the aim, if you can arrive to that. BAP out.